June 15, 2012 must be one of the happiest days of my life. I was at work watching President Obama walk out into the Rose Garden and announce this program. For me, it was just the opening of a door that I had been knocking for so long. Like, finally, we got wings. Welcome to Entry Denied, a podcast on U.S. immigration policy in the era of Donald Trump. I'm Alex Zelenikoff, director of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City. And I'm Deb Amos. I'm a correspondent with National Public Radio, and I report on immigration. This episode, we're going to talk about DACA. Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Nearly 800,000 people have benefited. You may know them as the Dreamers. During the campaign, Trump said he would end DACA. I will immediately terminate President Obama's illegal executive order on immigration. And in September, his administration issued orders to do just that. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. The policy change was challenged and went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in an unexpected 5-4 decision, the court held that the administration's ending of the program was illegal. Today, we go back to the beginning when President Obama announced the DACA program. We also talk with the DACA recipient about President Trump's order and to a law professor about the surprising Supreme Court decision. Cecilia Munoz, wonderful to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So in the beginning was the DREAM Act, which DREAM, all in caps, stood for Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors. And it was introduced in the United States Senate in 2001, and the Senate came close to passing it in 2007, and the House actually passed a version in 2010, but then it failed in the Senate. President Obama was pressed repeatedly to offer relief to the people who have been covered by the DREAM Act. And he said, no, I don't have the authority to do it. It's for Congress. And then in June 2012, President Obama announces DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Take us back to that moment. What led President Obama to create DACA? DACA is really a use of enforcement authority which is something that most people miss. And there's, you know, for good reason, it feels like a benefit program. But for legal reasons, it's actually quite important that it's not a benefit program. So the pathway to DACA actually starts in 2009 when President Obama gets inaugurated. And Janet Napolitano, his first DHS secretary, starts to develop a set of priorities for immigration enforcement, which sounds like a fairly low-key thing, But it's actually quite a big deal because before the Obama administration, the immigration enforcement agencies, their philosophy was there are 11 million undocumented people and they're all the same. So we should find as many of them as we can. So the Obama administration begins to kind of socialize with the enforcement agencies. Not all people who are on the wrong side of the law are the same. We're going to establish some priorities and use our resources to go after those priorities people who have been convicted of crimes, for example, should be a higher priority to be removed than, say, the folks who would benefit from the DREAM Act, young people who were brought as little children to this country and who know no other country but this one. 
So the first steps towards DACA really start to happen in 29, 2010, with a series of memos that establish for the first time a set of enforcement priorities. The idea is we should not be expending the resources Congress gives the executive branch on people who most Americans agree shouldn't be removed. People who did not choose to come to the United States, who they came as children, this is the only country they know. And if they are low priorities for enforcement, we're essentially saying we could protect you from deportation. We will defer action on your removal, which is the, what the, the D and the A of DACA stand for. And we'll take an additional step since you're not going anywhere. We'll give you work authorization so that you can work. Opponents of DACA cite a number of statements by President Obama before he announced DACA, saying that he did not have the authority to adopt by executive fiat dreamer-like actions. He said, that's for Congress. I'm not a king at one point, he said. Uh, I can't do things like this. What changed his mind on his legal authority to adopt DACA? He didn't change his mind. He was correct. What he was saying was, if you want permanent protection for the dreamers, I can't do that. He didn't have the legal authority to do what people were asking him to do. And more importantly, as a matter of strategy, he did not want advocates to take their feet off of the gas of pressuring the U.S. Congress to take this matter into their hands and provide permanent protection. In fact, the very day he was announcing DACA, he said, look, it's important that everybody understand this is temporary. The DREAM Act legislation would provide permanent protection and a pathway to citizenship. DACA provides temporary deferment of a deportation and work authorization, and it has to be renewed every every two years. And as the world has sadly learned, a subsequent administration can revoke it. This has been a political hot issue since the Trump administration came to, to office. Is this an example of that immigration policy should not be done by executive order? You know, I have agonized over that question because on the one hand, DACA transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. We know, for example, that of the um, 700,000 current DACA recipients, it was up to 900,000 at one point, 29,000 of them are serving on the front lines of the COVID pandemic in the medical profession. Uh, we know that they're working as teachers. We know that they're students. We know they're you know lawyers. We know that they're making an extraordinary contribution and so I, I, it doesn't feel good to say he never should have done it. But it is also true that we have kind of taken our foot off the gas of insisting that Congress do its job. And at the end of the day, this is Congress's job. And there is a tremendous amount of suffering that happens when Congress fails to do it. The Supreme Court decision shocked many people. I wonder if you were surprised by the decision. I was completely shocked by the decision. I think a lot of people all around the country were bracing for it to be a day of very bad news. And to have it be a day of very good news was stunning. But at the same time, it was a technical decision. It did not establish permanent protection for anyone. I mean, one thing that's very interesting about the support for the Dreamers is how much of it comes from the president's own party. Uh, the same week that the Supreme Court decided that the Trump administration had had erred in trying to eliminate DACA, Politico ran a poll which showed that 67% of the people who voted for President Trump don't want to remove the Dreamers. Um, and so, it, and 
the DREAM Act and the Dreamers themselves have had 85, 90% of the public support going back almost 20 years. Um, so it's not even in the president's interest to do what he's doing, but um, it's not clear that they understand that or that they care. Had the Supreme Court's ruling gone the other way at a time when they do have a lot of support in the country, would it have been, in some ways, a political public relations nightmare for the administration? It's impossible to know because, thank God, it didn't happen. And what we don't know is, were they ready to begin removing people or were they going to let people's protection lapse? Everybody had their own application date and therefore their own date when when their protection would run out. So it would be more like a drip, drip, drip of harm rather than, you know, busloads of people being removed all at once. Um, we may never know. and We don't know what the response would have been. I understand that you're proud of the creation of DACA, and I think most of the American people agree with you on that judgment. But the Obama administration had some other policies that were less favorable, certainly among the immigrant community, including detention of families at the border when there was a large influx of Central Americans, as well as actually deporting many more immigrants from the United States than the Trump administration has how do you look back on those policies? The notion that somehow the Obama administration was more anti-immigrant than the Trump administration is pretty nonsensical on its face. And the reason that the removal numbers in the, the high point in the Obama years was around 2012 were so much higher than they have been in the Trump administration is because at that point, the people who were coming to the border were still largely adults coming as individuals without families from Mexico, and those people are easily removed quickly after they enter. And so the vast majority of those removals were people who had just arrived. And that's no longer true because the composition of the people who are coming is very different. Now, the folks who present themselves at the border tend to be from Central America, and they tend to be parents with children, and they are not as easily removed the way the law works. You know, with respect to the use of detention, which I was troubled by at the time and which the administration elected to do, especially during the crisis years of 2014, 2015, where we had large numbers, unexpected numbers of people coming from Central America. The, the fact of the matter is that the tools available to policymakers once people reach the border are quite limited and pretty terrible. They range from just letting people go, which we did a fair amount of, to Community monitoring, which is essentially we, and this is something the, the Obama administration pioneered in partnership with faith-based groups, essentially having faith-based groups vouch for people and say, allow them into our communities. We will protect them. We will make sure they're okay. We will make sure that they show up at their removal hearings. The next place on the continuum is using ankle bracelets to ensure that people show up at their removal hearings. And then the next place on the continuum after that is detention. So in the Obama administration, we used all of those strategies. The Trump administration added another one, which was to take people's children, which I continue to be utterly appalled by. But until the law changes, faced with the kind of pressure at the border that we have been facing, those are the tools. Uh, the next administration is going to have some terrible choices to make because the pressures at the border continue to be real. And we have now compounded them with the problem of having created essentially migrant camps in Mexico, because we've effectively prevented people from coming forward and asking for asylum in the United States. 
There is no playbook for how to undo that in a way that works for the migrants themselves as well as for the country. And boy, is there no playbook for how to do that in the middle of a pandemic. You rightly say that COVID and a pandemic has changed everything on the border and and changed immigration policy in remarkable and sometimes surprising ways. Everything is shut down. There is no asylum process. There is no refugee program. There is hardly any immigration at all. How does the country open again? That is really the question of the hour. I think it means we need to rethink our procedures for how we treat people who approach the United States at our southern border, particularly knowing now that large numbers of people are coming who are potentially eligible for asylum, who are traumatized, who are fleeing violence or other things. But it is also true that if we are only dealing with what happens at the border, we're dealing with the symptom and not the actual disease, if you will, which is that we have a refugee crisis in our hemisphere. Part of the solution here is to provide a way for people to reach safety in the region without having to cross all of Mexico before they're safe. And so there really needs to be a regional response, a hemispheric response, if you will, which is something that the Obama administration, in partnership with the UN High Commission on Refugees and others, began to set up in the last two years of the administration to provide mechanisms for people to reach safety without having to undertake this dangerous journey. The Trump administration dismantled all of that, like in the first 15 minutes. And one of the results of that is that more people came north. If there are new DACA regulations, if the Trump administration puts more in place, and we find that the deportations begin, what does the country lose from these people? The dreamers are not foreign to the United States in in the most fundamental way, by which I mean, this is their country. This is where they grew up. This is where they're making their lives. This is where they're making their contribution. It's hard to imagine what purpose is served by threatening them in this way with removal. It's cruel and harmful to all of us, really. That was Cecilia Munoz. Daniela Alulema knows firsthand about the promise of DACA and her dread of having that program canceled. She is a DACA recipient, and she says the program changed her life. Let's start with your story. When you came to the U.S., how old were you, and what was that like? I was 14 years old when I got to New York. I came on a tourist visa, and my parents were both college graduates. They had a small business. They owned a house. Yet because of the political and economic instability in our home country, um, that's Ecuador, my parents made the tough decision of leaving everything behind and try to find better opportunities for my brother and for me um, in the United States. So I came in 2001, um, exactly two weeks before 9-11. I did not speak any English, so I had to quickly learn at least the basics so I could take the subway to go to high school. But I managed to learn the language pretty quickly. A year after I arrived, um, I was already taking college-level courses in high school, and I was really excited about the idea of going, going to college. 
my dream was to pursue a career in medicine, but I knew I wasn't documented because my tourist visa had an expiration date and that date had come and gone. But I didn't understand the implications of my status. So my gut told me to pursue a career that was shorter and that was practical. Um, so I decided to obtain a bachelor's degree in accounting. Daniela, when did you realize the full meaning of undocumented and how that was going to essentially weigh on your life? During my senior year in high school, the first time I had to go to Baruch College, which is the college I ended up going into, I had to submit some paperwork because in New York State, New York State provides institution rate to undocumented youth, but you had to submit some documentation first. So when I went to speak to an administrator, I had to show him a proof of identification. So the only thing I had was my passport with my expired visa. As soon as he saw that, he told me to go back to my country, that I had nothing to do here. I felt such an impotence when I was still learning English. I couldn't fully gather the words to, to, to say anything back. So that was the first time I, I, I realized how difficult it was going to be to be undocumented in America. As you came to the end of your time in college, how did your undocumented status affect your choices going forward? I didn't really have any choices. I thought that maybe getting good grades or taking many courses would be factors that would push an employer to overlook my lack of social security number and um, a work permit, but, but no, that didn't happen. Towards the end of my college years, I found a group that had undocumented college students um, who were pushing for a bill that was called the DREAM Act. I learned with them to own my story, to advocate for myself. So I was able to find a small business owner that gave me a job as a bookkeeper. I worked for his company for six years, so I was able to generate a little bit of income just to sustain myself and and, and help at home. Beyond that full-time job, I was pretty invested in working with this grassroots organization. We organized protests, civil disobedience actions, a hunger strike here in New York. And we were one of the many groups that organized across the country for the DREAM Act All of that behavior was risky for you. You were an undocumented person, and you were also a public person uh, lobbying for a way to resolve the thing that was hanging over your life. Did you not worry that all of you could be deported? Yes, I I was worried. Not not for me. I was more worried for my parents and and even my employer. I didn't want to get them into trouble. But I think it was a frustration and the impotence that we felt over our future that was bigger than the fear. And I think we also learned that if we are part of a larger community, we can protect each other. So the bill did fail in Congress that you and others had pushed for, but then in June of 2012, President Obama announced the DACA program. Can you tell us your reaction to that and and how you came to be a beneficiary? June 15, 2012 must be one of the happiest days of my life. I was at work watching President Obama walk out into the Rose Garden and announce this program. This morning, Secretary Napolitano announced new actions my administration will take to mend our nation's immigration policy, uh, to make it more fair, more efficient, and more just. 
specifically for certain young people, sometimes called dreamers. They are Americans in their heart, in their minds, in every single way but one, on paper. For me, it was just the opening of a door that I had been knocking for so long. I submitted my application in September, and it came perfectly timed. Um, my work permit arrived December 23rd of 2012, so it was a pretty nice Christmas present. Like, finally, we got wings. We were given an opportunity, and that's all we had been asking for. You go from, from this high of all of your opportunities are there before you to a presidential campaign where Donald Trump is saying, I want to end DACA. It's not legal. You know, a president can't do this. How did you feel on the day that he came to office, knowing full well that he actually could unravel your life? When I woke up that Wednesday after Trump was elected, the only thing I did was cry. <laughs> we knew that he was going to do a lot of damage. Even if he didn't fulfill every one of his campaigns, we knew that our lives and our futures were going to be at risk. We had been fighting on the front lines, putting ourselves at risk by opening our lives, either protesting or also by just applying to DACA, you know, providing our information to the government, telling them absolutely everything about our lives from the place where we live to the place where we work to details about our families. So there was a lot of fear that day, and, and, and there still is. The opponents of the DACA program and the president included among them would say to you, look, your, your parents were educated people. They came to the country. They knew the rules. They knew they overstayed. And now to give you status is to allow lawbreakers to basically create their own entry into the United States. What's your response? I would say we've been living here for 20 years. We have paid taxes. We have followed pretty much every rule and norm that U.S. citizens are bound to. We try to contribute as much as we can to our communities immigrants are needed here. We're part of the labor force. We're part of the backbone that sustains this, this country's economy. Look at the work that DACA recipients are doing in the front lines as essential workers in the middle of this pandemic. We grew up alongside your children. We are your colleagues. We're your fellow parishioners. We are your neighbors. So all we want is a right to live without the fear of having our future taken away from us. You left Ecuador when you were 14. You've now been in this country for more than two decades. Where's home? Um, I do love the country where I was born. When I was able to travel to Ecuador in 2015, I felt like it's the country that received me with open arms. It's the place where I belonged. But the United States is my home. I have developed my roots here in New York. So this is home for me. This is where I have my friends. This is where I've developed a career. This is where I know the language. I know my favorite restaurants. I know how to get around. So for me, home is, is this. 
home is this, a sentiment shared by hundreds of thousands of dreamers, but threatened when Trump tried to end the program. Trump insisted that DACA was illegal, that Obama had exceeded his authority when he put the policy in place. But the Supreme Court ruled that, in fact, it was Trump who exceeded his authority in the way he tried to end DACA. Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court was a narrow but powerful rejection of the way the Trump administration went about trying to revoke the program known as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, or DACA. To get some clarity, we talked with Michael Olivas, emeritus law professor and author of the recently published book, Perchance to Dream, a legal and political history of the DREAM Act and DACA. As Chief Justice Roberts' opinion points out, all the justices thought that President Trump has the power to terminate DACA. What were the specific flaws in the way that Trump went about doing it that led the court to invalidate his termination of the program? Well, I would be the first person to say he had the authority to do it, but he's got to do it in a way that is acceptable. He had to do it according to the APA. The Administrative Procedure Act, it's been around for 70 years, and it's the means by which we engage regulatory change. What it means for the most part is you post what you want to do in the Federal Register, a notice for rulemaking. We're going to do this. We want your responses. They'll get back 10,000 responses. They sift through them. They say, we, we like these. We don't like these. It's a procedure. And like everything else, it's designed to slow things, to slow change down, to make sure that your reasons are good, that they're not unlawful, that there are rules, and sometimes they're followed, sometimes they're not, sometimes they get caught, and sometimes they don't. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court then said, here's the problem. We have no opinion about DACA one way or the other, but you didn't follow the rules. That is exactly right. The Trump administration decided, without any kind of notice or comment or opportunity to speak about it or to testify, they would just shut it down. And it turns out that that was not enough. It wasn't enough for a majority of the Supreme Court. Alex, this was the hardest episode that we produced because everything kept changing, even after the Supreme Court ruled that the Trump administration's attempt to end the program was illegal. Right, and things remain in flux. The administration has noted its strong displeasure with the Supreme Court decision, and it's announced that it will not accept new DACA applications. That decision is now back before the courts. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode of Entry Denied. We'd like to thank Aaron Johnson for production assistance. Sahil Ansari is our producer and engineer, and our music is composed by Eli Elenikov. Check out our show notes on EntryDeniedPodcast.com, and you'll find resources to help you go even deeper into some of these issues. And please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Leave us a review as well. We'd love to hear from you. See you next week.